The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. And as we read, before we read, I do just want to remind you that this is indeed the Word of God. And it is true. It endures forever. It is a life-giving, precious gift. May we all receive it as such this morning. Romans 8, verses 1 through 9. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot Please, God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is the Word of God for the people of God this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon us, open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law that we might behold the glory of Jesus Christ, that we might be changed and transformed. May you rule and reign in every heart for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, what I am going to encourage you to do this morning is humanly impossible. It will take a supernatural work to make it happen. And you might be wondering, well, what's Troy talking about? Has, Has Troy seen one too many superhero flicks this summer? And the answer is no. I'm not talking about being bit by a special spider. I'm not talking about training from the League of Shadows or figuring out some special iron suit or coming from another planet. Nothing like that. What I'm talking about is actually better than that, and it's actually real. I'm talking about the living work of the Holy Spirit in our lives by faith on the basis of the historical life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I'm going to encourage you to set your minds on the things of the Spirit. And that is impossible apart from the work of the Spirit in your life. So as we look at Romans chapter 8, I want to ask three questions to help us understand 
this supernatural, this transforming work of the Spirit in relation to the law of God. The first question is this, what could the law not do? The second question will be, what did God do and how? And the final question will be, what does it look like for the Spirit to transform our lives? So let's begin with that first question. What could the law not do? You'll notice that verse 3 tells us God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. But if we back up to verse 1, you'll, you'll see one of the most amazing statements, one of the most well-loved statements in all of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is an incredible statement. Especially when you consider Romans 1 through 7. You have to ask, how did we get here? If you look at what Paul, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has done in the first seven chapters of this book, he has made the case that all of mankind is under God's wrath. That there is no one righteous. No, not one. That we have all loved God's created things more than we have loved God the Creator. We have all committed idolatry. We have all sinned. And we are therefore all under a just condemnation, the punishment of eternal death and separation from God. This is what every single one of us faces. It's what every single one of us deserves. And here we come to Romans chapter 8, and while we're told there's no condemnation, we see in verse 3 that this is something that the law cannot do. The law cannot change our state. It cannot fix this. In simple terms, the law cannot fix humanity's problem. It cannot save us from condemnation, and it cannot change our rebellious hearts. We are in a terrible predicament here. Those are the words that Bailey said in Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. If you have heard that story, read that story, you might remember the situation. Bailey was on a trip with his elderly mother and his wife and his three young children, and they're driving down a deserted dirt road out in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden they have an accident. And their car rolls down into a ravine and they experience various degrees of physical injury, but they've, they've survived the crash, but now they're in a desperate situation. They're injured, lying on the side of the road. They have no hope of getting their car back up to the road and going out to find somebody to help them. But then there's a glimmer of hope as Bailey looks up and he hears and he sees a car coming slowly from the distance until it stops right above them. And he thinks, maybe something has come to save us. There's this this hope for just a moment, but then that hope quickly turns to despair as they see three men get out of the car carrying guns and make their way down towards them. And they recognize the leader of that group as a dangerous criminal who has just escaped from prison. And so all Bailey can yell out over and over is, we are in a terrible predicament This sense of dread comes over him. What I had thought might save me now will only kill me. And this is what we all must say when we consider that the law is not able to solve humanity's problem. This is the same problem that is faced by every single person who has ever lived. It is the problem that you face today. It's the problem that was faced by your parents and your grandparents. It's the problem that I face problem that Dr. Rogers faces. It's a problem that Billy Graham has faced, that John Calvin and Martin Luther have faced. It's a problem that President Obama faces, faces in his personal life, and President Bush and President Reagan have faced. 
that Daniel Radcliffe and Matt Damon and Merle Streep face, that Cole Hamels and Michael Vick and LeBron James face, that Jay-Z and Steve Jobs and Richard Dawkins face. It is a problem that every single one of our neighbors and relatives face, that the cashier at the grocery store faces and the waitress at the restaurant and your boss and your coworkers and your teammates and your classmates and your dentist and your doctor and your banker and your insurance agent. Have I made the point? It's a problem that every single person in this world faces. Every person ever born is in a terrible predicament. The law cannot save us. We are infinitely guilty before an infinitely holy God, and the law cannot remove our condemnation. It cannot save us from the judgment that we deserve. And the law also cannot make us righteous. It cannot change our hearts. It cannot change the bent of our heart towards rebellion against God. It cannot sanctify us or make us holy. The law is powerless to change us. You know, in that story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, Bailey's elderly mother, she tries everything she can to keep this escaped convict, the misfit, from destroying her family. So she begins to have a conversation with him, and she starts by trying to change his way of thinking, telling him that he's a good man, that he comes from good people, that he really wouldn't want to do this kind of thing. And that's not working, so she tries to get him to consider a better way of life, how good it would be to change your ways and and not have the law chase you anymore. She tries to reason with him with a sense of right and wrong. You would never shoot an old lady. She tries to bribe him. I'll give you all my money. She starts to talk about Jesus and tells him to pray. But like the law, she could not do it. She could not change him. She was powerless to change him from a cold-hearted killer into a kind-hearted man. She could not change his heart. The law could not save us from condemnation. And it could not change us. It could not take away our rebellion against God. You see, every one of us has two deep problems. Much deeper than any financial problems we may have. Much deeper than any health problems we may have. Much deeper than any relational problems we may have. Much deeper than any problems we think our government may have. We are all guilty before God and deserve condemnation. And we are all rebellious against God And we love his created things more than we love him. And neither of these problems can be fixed by the law of God, by following the Ten Commandments that God has given at Mount Sinai. We, indeed, are in a terrible predicament here. But, unlike unlike Bailey and his family, there is hope for us. Because what the law could not do, God did for us. That brings us to our second question. What did God do and how? We see this displayed in verses 3 and 4, and I'll summarize it by this. God has graciously solved humanity's problem for us by sending his Son and giving his Spirit. This is something that God did, not us. We don't earn it by keeping the law, by being a good moral person. You see, to fix our first problem, our problem of condemnation, God turns us away from the law and toward Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God has taken away our condemnation by condemning Christ in our place. And this is the only way 
that our guilt can be removed. It says that he sent his son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is God himself becoming man. This is what makes Christianity different from all the other religions in the world. This is not man trying to find his way to God. This is God coming to rescue fallen man. God sent his son for sin or for a sin offering. And the Bible refers to this work of Jesus by using the word propitiation. It's a turning aside of the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is our problem. We cannot turn it aside. There's nothing that we can do to atone for, to make up for our sin. There's nothing we can do to turn God's wrath aside. In fact, all we do just increases his wrath against us apart from Christ. We are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath. But Jesus comes and stands in our place. He intercepts the wrath of God that was upon us. God sends his own son to take our condemnation upon his shoulders as if it was his own. And so Jesus, the only son of God, is condemned by God on the cross as if he was just as guilty as you and me. There's a powerful example of this idea of substitution in the movie To End All Wars. I'm sure some of you have seen that. It's, it's based on the book by Ernest Gordon. He was a British captive in a prisoner of war camp, a Japanese prisoner of war camp during World War, World War II. And he tells about the horrible situations that they had to endure. And in one of those situations, there was a, a time where five men, five prisoners were uh, accused of murdering two of the Japanese guards. And so they were sentenced to be executed by the firing squad. And they were forced to take their place in front of their comrades. And the first four men were shot and killed in front of their friends and their brothers. But then the fifth one, the last one, the leader, Major Campbell, was forced to his knees and they were going to behead him with a sword. But at the last moment, another prisoner of war, the chaplain of the group, a man by the name of Dusty, grabbed the attention of the Japanese leader and, and, and brought him to his side and, and whispered to him and, and was offering to give his life in exchange for Major Campbell. He would die so that Major Campbell could live. But Major Campbell was guilty of murder. He had committed the crime. He was guilty and his scheme, his plan, had actually already cost the lives of four of his fellow soldiers. But now someone was going to take the punishment that he deserved and die in his place. And that is indeed what happened. Dusty died and Major Campbell lived. The innocent died for the guilty. This is an example of what Christ has done for us. Christ dies so that we may live. What incredible grace. And this solves our first problem. Our problem of condemnation, separation from God. The Bible says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. You see, when you trust in this work of Christ, your condemnation is taken away and it changes your standing before God. It changes your condition. You are now at peace with God. God has justified us through his son. He has made us right with God. So now... Romans 8, 1 can be true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not now, nor will there ever be, because Christ has taken 
at all. This is indeed good news for us this morning. But what about our second problem? What about the disposition of our heart, our tendency to rebel against God? How does God change us? How does he turn us from rebellious sinners into Christ-like sons and daughters? Does he now give us the law so that by following it, we can turn away from our rebellion and change our hearts? And the answer is no. We have no power. The law has no power to do this. Instead, God graciously gives us his spirit to dwell within us. You see, the power to change does not come from the law, but it comes from the indwelling of the spirit of Jesus Christ. That supernatural work. It is only the spirit, the living indwelling Jesus Christ who gives life. He changes us to the core. He writes the law of God on our hearts and he turns our hearts and our affections towards him so that we love him and cherish him and treasure him above all else. He does indeed break the power of canceled sin. This is the work of the spirit of the living God. The spirit of the living God dwells in you. If you are here this morning and you are trusting in Christ, the spirit of the living God dwells within you and every one of you who is a Christian. Being indwelt by the spirit is not some special privilege that is only reserved for those who are the most mature and the most spiritual. It is a privilege for every true Christian without exception. And the spirit is not just in us, like you might be in a car or in a store or in this building right now. No, the word is dwell, and it comes from the Greek word for the word house. The idea is that the spirit of the living Christ is not just present in us in a temporary way, but that he has taken up residence in us. He's taken residence in you. This is where he lives. This is his home. And what do you do when you buy a home? You make it your own, right? You, you bring all your stuff in it, You arrange it just the way you want. You might repaint, you might rearrange, you might remodel, but you're making it your own. The Spirit has made us His home. The implication is one of nearness and familiarity and influence and ownership. There's hope for you, believer, because God Almighty, by His Spirit, dwells within you. He makes you His home. He is within you right now at this moment as you listen to his word and he will be within you every moment this week whatever you are facing he comes in and makes his home within you and he changes you so what has God done God has graciously provided for the righteous requirements of the law to be fulfilled in us so that now not only does God count the righteousness of Jesus Christ as ours as if we had obeyed the law perfectly just as Jesus Christ obeyed the law perfectly. But now God enables us by the presence and power of his Holy Spirit to desire to obey God's law and indeed to do so in a way that pleases God and brings him glory. And so that leads us to our final question this morning. We'll spend some time here, but the final question is this. What does it look like for the Spirit to transform our lives? What does that look like? We see this in verses 5 through 9, and I will state it like this. The indwelling spirit empowers obedience to God's law stemming from a transformed mindset. The indwelling spirit empowers obedience to God's law 
that comes from a transformed mindset. What the Spirit does is He enables us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, to understand what Paul's saying here in verses 5 through 9, it helps us to see the contrast that he is making between those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. There's really only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are under condemnation without Christ, and there are those for whom there is now no condemnation, who are in Christ. There are those who live according to the flesh without the Spirit, and there are those who live according to the Spirit, who have the Spirit dwelling within them. There are Christians, and then there are those who not. So Paul's making this contrast, and what he says first is that those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit, we set our minds on different things. We have a different way of thinking. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. They think the way the unbelieving world thinks. Their mind is captive to a sinful nature, a fallen nature. They value the things that the world values, pursue its priorities with total disregard for God and His will and His way. When my wife and I first got married, I I drove for UPS for about a year as I was looking for a job as a youth pastor. And I can remember that time when I finally was called to be a youth pastor up at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Harrisburg, going back to UPS and telling my coworkers and my friends. I remember uh, this one big burly guy, former football player, just could not understand why I would leave a solid, well-paying job to go work for a church. Made no sense to him. And I I said to him something like, well, there's more important things than money. And I remember his response clearly. He said, no, there's not. Money and sex, that's all there is. That's the expression of a mind set on the flesh. Money, sex, power. This world is all there is. A life of ease and relaxation and pleasure and early retirement are seen as the goal. Let me spend my life in pursuing my own desires, pursuing my own pleasures. And so we value people based on their abilities or their accomplishments or how much money they make or what degrees they've earned or what grades they've gotten or the people that they know, or the number of followers that they have, or their physical measurements, or their map my run distances and times, or their looks, or their popularity. It's a mindset where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and it leads to a society that murders its children and parades for lifestyles that exclude people from the kingdom of God. This is the world that we live in today. It's a mindset that views Jesus at best as a good man and at worst as a myth. That's where we all once were. But we no longer regard Christ according to the flesh, do we? Because the Spirit has come and transformed our lives and made us new. But the Bible says that the mind that is set on the flesh is dead. People who are dead to God live with their minds focused on the things of this world. But in contrast, people who are alive to God, who have been transformed by the Spirit, who have the Spirit of the living God dwelling in them, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They think differently because they are alive. They are not dead. The question is, what are the things of the Spirit? Well, in general, we could say that the Spirit transforms our mindset so that we desire God that we have holy affections, that it's our desire to be holy as God is holy. But specifically, when you look through the Scriptures, you see that the work of the Spirit is 
seen in three specific ways. He helps us to think biblically about sin. He helps us to understand the truth of God's word. And he magnifies the glory of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if your mind is set on the Spirit, repentance will be a regular part of your life. The Holy Spirit will convict you of your sin and he will lead you to the cross. So that when he shows you your sin, you don't respond with despair, but he brings you to the promises of God's word. Like Romans 8.1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like 1 John 1, where we're told that if we confess our sins, our God is faithful and just, and he will indeed forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In chapter 2, when it says that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, someone who comes to our defense. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and leads us to the cross. And so we pray, God, show me my sin and grant me repentance. When was the last time you personally, privately repented of your sin? If your mind is set on the Spirit, repentance will be a regular part of your life. Well, second, we see that if, if your mind is set on the Spirit then your mind will be set on the truth of God's Word. The Spirit comes and He illuminates God's Word. It's like He turns on the light and He helps us understand it. You cannot understand the Word of God apart from the work of the Spirit of God. And so we we pray, God, show me your truth and grant me understanding. Grant me obedience. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Are you availing yourself of the Word of God? Do you spend time reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it? When is the last time you read the Word of God on your own? Or when's the last time you did something out of a desire to obey God's Word? If your mind is set on the Spirit, God's Word and His truth will regularly be in your thoughts. Well, also, to set your mind on the Spirit is to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. The Spirit loves to magnify the glory of the Son, to help us see Jesus for who He is and to cherish Him and delight in Him and love Him. So we pray, God, show me Your glory and grant me faith. And when was the last time that you were overwhelmed at the glory of Jesus Christ? That you marveled at who He is or what He has done for you, that you were compelled to tell someone else about your Savior. To set your mind on the Spirit is to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. It's to repent of your sin. It's to meditate on God's Word. And it is to pursue Christ's glory. Well, the contrast continues here in Romans 8. Paul says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And while it's not directly stated in this passage, the implied contrast is that those who've been transformed by the Spirit now have their minds set on the Spirit and they love God and they do submit to God's law and they can please God. Those who have the Spirit love God. And one way that they can express that love for God is by obeying His Word. Jesus said in John 14, If you love me, You will do what I command you. You will keep my commandments. 
He said in John 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So now the law is not a means to earn our salvation or take away our condemnation or change us. It's an opportunity for us to show our love to the God who made us and gave himself for us. Those who have the Spirit have a growing submission to God's law. They recognize this as an opportunity to acknowledge God's right to reign in their lives. He has authority in our lives. And so this is not just outward conformity, which is easier to do. And I'm sure almost all of you have heard the story of the parent telling the little child to sit down. And the child is obstinately standing up and standing up. Sit down, sit down. Finally, the child sits down but can't contain the burst and yells out, well, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's not our attitude towards the Word of God. It's not just this outward conformity. It's an inner bent, a delight. It's a transformation of the Holy Spirit. We say with the psalmist, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The Spirit enables us to obey the law and to please God. Before, we could not please God in anything that we did. But now we've been transformed so that we can please our heavenly Father, we have new desires. We, don't lo- we no longer ask, you know, how much can I get away with? How far towards the edge can I go? What's wrong with it? But instead we begin to ask, how can I please my Savior who gave himself for me, who loves me? How can I please my God? And all of this is possible because of the work of Jesus Christ and the gift of, and power of the Holy Spirit. Well, where do we go from here? I want to give you just two simple next steps, ways that we can take the truth of God's Word and live it out this week. And the first is I want to ask you just a series of questions. Are you truly a Christian? Or to use the words of the, of the Bible, have you truly been born again? Do you have the Spirit? Some of you might be here this morning, and you might know that you are living according to the flesh. You might admit that your mind is set on the things of the flesh at all times, and and you might not care. You might not be worried about what the Bible says, or maybe for some reason you think that you'll be okay, but you have to ask the question, what will happen after you die? And the Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. If you're here today and you've been living according to the flesh with your mind set on the things of the flesh, your very presence here today is due to the mercy of God. And God is speaking to you today through his word, giving you the opportunity to be freed from your judgment and your condemnation. You have walked in condemned. You can walk out free with no condemnation. What an opportunity. Do not miss it. It may never come again. Do not presume upon the grace of God. Repent and trust in Christ. But you know, maybe that's not you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe everyone thinks that you are a Christian. But as you sit here and you hear God speak to you through his word, the Holy Spirit is convicting you. Because I'm not asking you, what everybody else thinks. I'm asking you, have you truly been born again? I'm not asking what impression do you give. I'm not asking if you are outwardly religious. 
if you go to church, if you tithe, if you give to the poor, if you are involved in good works in your community. I'm not asking if you've passed a membership interview, if you believe the right things, if you can even give verbal consent to the core doctrines of the faith. And I'm not asking if you've attained to a certain level of approved behavior or if you have volunteered in the church. I'm asking, have you been born again? Does the Spirit of the living God dwell within you? Is He transforming you day by day so that you more and more desire what God desires and delight in the glory of Jesus Christ and strive to please God? Do you love Jesus? Do you see evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life? If yes, thanks be to God. That is a miracle of grace. But if not, do not let anything stop you from coming to Christ today. Don't let your pride get in the way. Well, what will people think if they find out I wasn't a Christian before? It doesn't matter what people think. It only matters what Almighty God thinks. These are matters of eternal life and death. You too have the opportunity to walk out free from condemnation for the first time. Repent and trust in Christ. Well, if you've done that already and you are walking in the joy of knowing Christ, I want to encourage you This week, empowered by the Spirit, remembering what the law cannot do and what God has done, may you daily set your mind on the Spirit. And I say that to remind you that it is the power of the Spirit dwelling in you that enables you to do this. That what you do cannot earn you favor with God or make you right with God. And that when you struggle with your mindset between thinking according to the flesh and thinking according to the Spirit. Through the work of Christ, there is no condemnation for you. And through the indwelling of the Spirit, He will bring your mind back to the things of the Spirit. So I want you to have the hope of the gospel to strengthen you. But at the same time, I want to encourage you to make every effort to set your mind on things that are above, to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, to fix your eyes on Jesus. And today... We have so many resources that can help us do that. The Word of God is so easily accessible to us today in so many ways. Avail yourself of those resources, whatever it is that will help you, whether it's memorizing God's Word, reading God's Word, listening to sermons, reading devotionals, whatever the case may be, listening to Him, singing Him, singing songs, whatever it is that will point your thoughts to Jesus Christ. May you set your minds on the things of the Spirit and the glory of Jesus Christ. And I want to close by doing that together with you. And I have shared this with some of you before. I don't believe I've done it on a Sunday morning before. But this is a poem, I guess you would call it, written by Shai Lin. He is uh, a reformed hip-hop artist. Look him up and you can find out all about him. Uh, But he loves Jesus and he loves God's Word. And he has... An incredible way with words to help us behold the glory of Jesus Christ and help us set our minds on the Spirit. Let us do that. Shai wrote, All praise to the name of the Savior who reigns. He's taken our blame, embraced all our shame. He's raised from the grave, so his fame we proclaim. Salvation by grace through faith in his name. Jesus, the beautiful and blessed Son, 
immutable, majestic one who was resurrected from the grave. For the depraved, he paved the path for some. Place faith in his passion, son, be saved from the wrath to come. He's fabulous. His status is immaculate. I'm lacking the vernacular to adequately capture his glory. Incomparable, unconquerable, all-powerful, unstoppable, absolutely phenomenal. No obstacle he can't navigate. He's God, and so he fascinates with him. It's impossible to exaggerate. Lord of all continents, source of all consciousness, his compliments are the consequence of his accomplishments. Every sphere of life, he's the Lord of it. And every other power is either fraudulent or subordinate. At first, we snubbed him. Now, his vessels of mercy love him. Your highest thought is infinitely unworthy of him. Beyond vocabulary, his actions vary. His wrath is scary. All his adversaries are imaginary. He has no competitors. Ask Nebuchadnezzar, he'll mess you up. Have you eaten grass? You can bet he's amazing. He takes in blatant, flagrant vagrants, breaks them, remakes them, and shapes them to hate sin. Jesus, there's no better name that'll never change, and he'll forever reign while we spread his fame. So all praise to the name of the Savior who reigns. He's taken our blame, embraced all our shame. He's raised from the grave, so his fame we proclaim. Salvation by grace through faith in his name. Amen. Set your mind on the Spirit. Let us pray. Oh God, words are not adequate to convey who you are, what you offer, what you have done for us. I pray that no one would reject Christ who is here this morning. And I pray that those who know and love you would delight in you and have their souls satisfied as with good things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.